0: Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed.
1: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine. erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Wine. coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
0: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. This is Earth. Connecting you to the big... Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. You don't like things are getting back to normal? Kind of. It's episode 225 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. If you're a fan of the show, you probably think, man, he sounds a little different. And yes, I am sick. No, I didn't get the con crud though. Here's the thing, and I don't like to get personal for too long on the show, but let me tell you exactly what happened. No, I did not get the con crud from going to San Diego Comic Con this year. Here's the problem: when I got home, everyone at my house was already sick. My son was sick. My wife was sick. So as much as I tried, I mean, I'm airborne. All kinds of vitamin C, you know, hand sanitizer, washing my hands. No matter what I did. Nothing. I, I still ended up getting sick, so we're going to power through episode 225 this week, and because, hey, talking to the cast, producers, writers of Death of Superman from DC and Warner Brothers Animation, Jerry O'Connell, Rebecca Romaine, so many more are going to join the show this week to talk about bringing back the story, once again, of Death of Superman and how it's actually going to continue on past this movie as well, so we'll get their insights on that, but guess what? One thing definitely is getting back to normal. It's what we're reading. Some comic book reviews next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy
0: Podcast. It's been a while, but let's grab that laptop, the tablet, or pull out the long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And one thing I wanted to do this week, because I didn't get a chance to do this while I was at San Diego Comic-Con, I want to talk about... Some of the books that were announced by Comixology Originals. Now, I did tell you which books stood out to me, so let's review one, shall we? How about Grave Danger, number one, from Comixology Originals, and Tim Seeley writing that one, Mike Norton on the art, Alan Pasolacqua on the colors, Crank on the letters, and Layout Assists from Dave Stokes. Now, basically, this book follows an organization called Headstone, which deals with unspeakable crimes by paranormal entities, so you're talking vampires, demons, stuff like that. Now, the agent that this really follows, I mean, you have the heads of the agency that we do see, but what we see a lot more of is Grave Danger. Yes, that is her name, and might be one of the coolest names in comics right now. It just works. It's its its not corny at all. It's a little bit of a pun, and I think that's one of the reasons that I love it, but it works so, so well, and I mean, she's kind of someone inexperienced and is going after someone who is trafficking trafficking women for reasons that I won't spoil but I will say that it is for a war against God which kind of ups the ante a little bit once you get into the story and find out what's going on you you'll understand how how serious and how creepy what's going on really is now she uses a weapon I'm going to talk about this and maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler so just just to give you a heads up on that but the book's been out for a while if you if you've I haven't read it yet. I mean, just skip ahead like thirty seconds. Now, she uses a weapon called a utility stick, which is kind of exactly how it sounds. But at the same time, it, it kind of reminds you of Batman's utility belt in a way, except in a stick. In that it has all these different things in the stick, and we see a couple of those things highlighted in this first issue, so my question automatically is, how much more are we going to see from the stick, and how much more can this stick do, so it it's something so simple like that, but at the same time, it creates all of these questions in my head as to, okay, how cool is this thing really, and so far, it seems like it's pretty darn cool, and I would say the same thing for Agent Danger, too, I mean, she has a cocky attitude, it makes her instantly likable, she likes to crack jokes, she likes to not really take much seriously, except for one specific thing. That I don't want to spoil about. We do get to find out about it a little bit in a flashback to her past when she was a kid. We actually find out how she gets that code name as well during that flashback. Now, when she does track down the target, I'm not even going to attempt this guy's name, by the way. So, Tim Seely. It's like he created a trap for me because he knows everybody knows that I'm terrible at names. And this, this, no. No, not even gonna try to butcher this name. So I'm just gonna get that out of the way right now. You'll read the book. you'll you'll see it. And you'll understand where I'm coming from. You know why I should not tackle this name at all. Now, when she does get there, we get to see what the villain's plan is. and yeah, it's pretty creepy, but at the same time it, it it's it's almost like, wow, okay, so this is what's going on, and this is how they ended up where they were. and this is what the, a completely different group of guys. This is what they're doing, and this just this seems like an excuse to. I don't know, be around a whole, a whole bunch of sin. That's the best way that I can really put it. So what happens when Agent Danger actually enters this room is where it gets very, very interesting. And there's a callback to something from earlier in the issue. And it again, it just raises a lot of questions and something that she's very much connected to that may be a bigger part of the story than we thought originally. Now, I got to tell you, the art is crazy good. By Mike Norton. If you're not familiar with his work, the lines are so clean. Everything really, really pops off the page. It wouldn't be a Tim Seeley book if there weren't a few jokes thrown in there as well. And there's quite a few in this issue, uh, quite a few uh, as far as name calling goes that that really made me chuckle. So a lot of the jokes for me landed in this issue, It just seemed really, really fun. And if this is what Comixology is going to be doing with their originals, I'm all in. As a matter of fact, I mean, if you're a Comixology Unlimited member, you get these for free anyway, so there's. Go back to last week's show to hear about some of the other issues that we talked about as well. But I'm going to go ahead and go through these now because this is a poll for me. See, now I have to read these because this was this introduction for me. It, it's almost like you know you launch a line, and Comicsology is certainly not unfamiliar to comics. But when you're launching your first original, really, I, I mean, I know they've done some, but these are straight up original series with original characters. There is a certain amount of risk there. And even though, you know, there's a little bit less risk when you have great creators like Tim Seeley, there's still a we don't know what we're gonna get sort of scenario. So bravo to them for the at least for this one anyway, because it is a big winner for me. Speaking of which, here's something that I've been looking forward to for a while from DC Comics. Green Arrow, number 43. And the reason I say that, it's the first issue written by Julie and Shauna Benson. Javier Fernandez on the art, John Callas on the colors, Daron Bennett on the letters, and an amazing cover, by the way, by Alex Melieve. Amazing stuff there. Now, this really kind of feels like a new beginning for this story, even though it certainly doesn't shy away from past arcs. There's there's some callbacks to Green Arrow Annual Number Two. There's some callbacks to No Justice as well. Plus the existing relationship between Roy and Ollie, which I actually think is a really great thing for them to focus on and highlight, especially early on in this issue. It's so great and you kind of see the highlights of their contrasting styles and sometimes viewpoints as well. It just seems like I'm glad we're getting back to that. And Green Arrow has been one of the best books since Rebirth started anyway, but I'm really glad that we've kind of evolved to the point where we're getting back to the Oliver Queen and Roy Harper story a little bit more, and things up. The ante is getting upped too, by the way, for Oliver and Dinah as well, as we see later on in the issue. Now, the villain in this issue I will talk about. So, again, a little bit of a spoiler. If you don't want to spoil who the villain is of this story, fast forward a little bit. And the villain's called the Citizen. Now, basically, I won't tell you exactly what the Citizen is up to, so I won't spoil that. But there is a very present and relevant real-world issue that the Bents have put in this story. And now, now, it's a far more extreme spin on it, trust me. But when you read it and you see what they're talking about, like, wow, this could not be more relevant, and the timing could not have been better for what's been going on, I mean, for, for the last year, but especially for the last couple of weeks, where this kind of thing has been an issue... It's, I really want to shout it from the rooftops, but I can't. I don't want to spoil it for you because when you read it, I want to see if you have the same reaction that I did in thinking, man, this is timed so, so perfectly. And again, it's a very extreme example of it, but you know how people in the public eye can be attacked. Let me just put it that way. So it just feels timed so well. And the right heroes, by the way, and the right story to tackle this issue. Again, an extreme example of it, but it's a subject matter that we're dealing with on an almost daily basis right now. And I know that these issues are written well in advance. So it's not like the Benson sat down and banged this out a couple of weeks ago. This is something that's been done. It just happened to hit at exactly the right time for what the citizen is talking about. And and again, this is something we've kind of seen other versions of media before, but this is, it just seems like a fresh take on it and something that's exactly relevant for what's going on right now. I will say one thing though, you kind of see the ending coming, but I would have been disappointed if they didn't do it. So it's not a knock on the story at all because it's almost like if this is what the citizen is doing, then how could you not come to the conclusion that the citizen comes to At the end of this issue, so I would have been really disappointed if they didn't go that route. The art in this book is very different from the last book, but it's still it's very very good. And the way that the play of the shade and the light are utilized in here really gives a good emotion to certain scenes in the book. Like there's a scene where Oliver is writing a letter, and there's just this there's this shine coming off of where his, of like the top of his head, or where you could tell he's writing in very dim lighting, and it just really set a mood for what he's writing and why he's writing it. I thought it was brilliant. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's little things like that that really draw me out, pun absolutely intended, when it comes to art. Certain little things like that that I will pick up and go, man, I just loved how they did that. I like the look for Black Canary as well. That should be no surprise. With Julian and Shauna Benson, involved. very familiar with that character. So Javier Fernandez does a great job with that as well. And readers should definitely have plenty to talk about at the end of this issue. And once again, a pull for me. So a double pull for not only Green Arrow number 43 from DC Comics, but also Comicsology Originals, Grave Danger number one as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, it's This Week in Geektainment. What are we reviewing? Find out next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice
3: of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy
4: Podcast.
0: Finding our path in the light and the dark, it is time for our spoiler-filled review of the finale of Season 1 of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. Like I said, a lot of spoilers ahead. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, then I would skip ahead maybe about 5-10 or ten minutes so you don't get anything spoiled for you. And yes, we're definitely going to be talking about that post-credit stinger. So I'm not going to recap the entire episode, but I do want to kind of set the stage because the terrors are kind of everywhere now and Tandy and Tyrone are rushing to try and stop what's happening with Roxon. and Tyrone's still on the run from the law. You still have Tandy trying to re- redeem herself for her really shitty behavior. I mean, if we're really just going to put it right out there and I- I'll get to that here in a second too you see that she actually ends up saving Mina, which she definitely owed Mina one, but then that doesn't end up working out because Mina ends up becoming a terror. And now Tyrone and Detective O'Reilly end up getting caught by the cops and then Connors tries to kill them and terror show up and that kind of throws that plan awry. Now, the one thing I did love though, one scene that I really wanted to point out was with Tyrone and they're with that cop and they're kind of locked in that back room waiting for that Whatever is going to be happening to them, and he, he, you know, it it was to the point where he was really pushing the cop, and you thought the cop was going to go in there and beat the crap out of him. But instead, Ty gives this really great speech about how he's from New Orleans, and you know his, you know, their families aren't so different. And if he's, if you're from that area, you understand, and you know this is your chance to be a good cop and do what you're supposed to do and protect us. And it was a really great speech, and it really stood out to me as as kind of the moment where you don't need your powers to be a hero because he's saying how much he needs the cloak to do what he needs to do. And that comes up again later on in the episode, and Tandy's the one that actually props Tyrone up and, of course, gives him his sweat jacket back that she stole all those years ago. So so there's that. So I just thought that that was a really cool moment, though, saying, you know, that was a moment where he didn't have his powers but still managed to affect some sort of change, or at least it looked like it did. Nothing really much actually came from that, except for the fact that the cop didn't go in there and beat him half to death, which is what looked like was about to happen. Or, I I mean, I, I guess maybe things got interrupted before the cop had a chance to do anything, and the cop does end up saving him at one point, but I just wished a little bit more... Would have come from that moment, so I thought it was really, really cool. Now the way things kind of end up, it like again, I don't want to go through this entire episode because I want to talk about the season as a whole a little bit as well. Yes, Tandy does get her resem- redemption on Roxon and the and the and the and the guy that made her dad responsible for everything that happened. She ends up taking him down, and now he's in the catatonic state. You see, Ty end up taking care of Connor's in a way, you know, kind of. I I don't even really know how to describe it. You've seen the episode, you understand, where he just kind of absorbs him, I guess is the best way to describe it, you know, because he's still trying to figure out what what the scope of his powers really are exactly. And then they set up the whole thing about, and they'd been setting it up for a couple of episodes now, where it said one of them had to die in order for the whole town to be right, the whole city to be right again. But it turns out that that wasn't the case. You know, they did the divine pairing thing, they grabbed hands. You know, held things up by the power of Grayskull, and all of the evil went uh, went into the sky, or something of that nature. It's not really as simple as that. I get it, but that's you know that's exactly what it, what it ends up looking like. So I mean, everything kind of rounded out very nicely for this first season. I thought in this episode of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, we also get to see Detective O'Reilly. She does get shot by Connors, and she gets dumped into the water just as the valve explodes. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? One of those things where you had those two things happen, where you, and then Tyrone ends up in the water, and Tandy ends up in the water, and that's how they get their powers. Well, guess what? We see in the post credit stinger that Detective O'Reilly is no longer Detective O'Reilly. She emerges from the water because she has powers now. And big spoiler alert, if anybody doesn't know Cloak and Dagger lore... That's mean, That means she has made her transformation into mayhem. And the reason I know that is because when I was at the tail end of the panel at San Diego Comic-Con, yes, we saw the claw marks teased on their little teaser that they showed in the panel. So that, to me, says that mayhem is coming to season two of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. Now, mayhem does have gas powers that she can emit. It's kind of a truth serum. In a certain way, it can also paralyze her victims, and then she uses the claws to do the rest. She can also fly, too, by the way, so I'm sure that's not going to cause any problems at all, though we don't know how much the scope of her powers we're actually going to get to in the second season because, you know, a lot of what these Marvel shows have done is try to put a real-world spin on things that are going on, make it a little bit more realistic and true to life, and I think that they kind of did that even with with the suit, for Tyrone. And they had the Red Hawks be a part of that and how he gets the cloak. I loved that that kind of brought him closer to his dad. And that's what Ty kind of wanted this entire season, didn't he? Was to fix his family and be closer to his family. And Tandy kind of wanted the same thing. She wanted to fix her family, but it was the way that they went about it completely differently. And it was almost like Tandy had to save her life in order for it to change, but Ty had to destroy his life in order for his to change, and the fact that, it, that this season they always went back to Tandy's addiction, whether it be to the pills, and then it ended up being with her taking people's hope when she got that vision of her dad, and her dad maybe wasn't the guy that she thought he was, so she fell back into addiction, and she just kept falling back into it and into it, and it got to the point where when bad stuff was happening to her, it felt Really difficult for me to feel sorry for her because, for one, I kind of thought she was doing it to herself. And for two, she just wasn't that redeemable of a person. But then she really tries... She she doesn't completely be redeemed in this final episode of season one. But the funny thing is, is right towards the end when she's talking to Ty and Ty's in the church, he had to move in there now because he's still on the run from the law, despite everything that's happened. And she's, And he says something to the effect of... Since when are you, Since when do you care? And she says, I'm trying. So it's almost like her redemption isn't quite complete yet. It's very much in the beginning stages. And you start to see, okay, now this is the point where they're going to start to learn from each other. And they're really going to start to bond even more from this point on. Now for some of the good, and I'll get back to more of the good here in a second. But there are some loose ends that really needed to be tied up. Like what happens to Ivan Hess? We don't really know what happened to him, right? I mean, not the not the final, not the finale of what happened to him anyway. So I'm hoping that we get to find out exactly what happened to Ivan Hess. We know that things didn't go well for him. But another thing, and this kind of goes for the season as a whole, where you had Evita and she was a big part of Tyrone's life and you saw them getting closer and they had their relationship that started. I mean, she kind of seemed to disappear. For a big chunk of the season, and then kind of showed up a little bit too late here at the beginning of the season. And I mean, it feels like they could have made that more of a constant presence than they did. And the whole constant history lesson in this finale episode—I I liked it at first, and you know, I—you uh, get to the point where I was like, "Okay, I get it." But they just kept hammering on, on, and on, and on about all these different history lessons. And while it was kind of interesting. It's something that I could have done without towards the end of the episode because it just felt like I wanted to get back to the story that was being told. It's like, I get that one of them's supposed to die, and you don't need to hammer this home anymore. I think we all kind of understand that. So it was pretty easy to get to that point right away. I didn't think that they needed to drag that out in this episode. But again, going back to the things that I did like, I mean, the rise and fall in the relationship between Tandy and Tyrone was really, really good. Keeping that going back to Tandy being an addict, I thought was really, really great as well. There were some good callbacks. It's almost like this show never want to let you forget what happened earlier on in the season and then everything that happened with Fuchs, I thought that that you know that was a relationship that kind of we we caught on to later on in the season with with him and detective O'Reilly and then to have that taken away from her the way it was I thought was a really, really strong moment right towards the end of the season. And yes, I hated Connors. They did a great job with that. And they made me hate Tandy at times. And I wasn't a huge fan of Tyrone at times either. But then they would build themselves back up. And then they'd do something again to knock you down and go, man, I can't believe they did that just when I was starting to like them. And then at the end, it's almost like not only did you start to like them more at the end, but they're starting to understand each other and understand their roles and understand they can be better And I think that that's the most redeeming quality of the first season of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger. So while it wasn't perfect and while I know there's still plenty more of questions to go ahead, I think that they've built a great foundation for season one and I think very much deserved a season two. And I can't wait to see more of that. So I'll give this seven terrors out of ten trying to chop into your closet that you're hiding in shining style for Marvel's Cloak and Dagger season one, seven out of ten definitely recommend it if you haven't watched it yet. You can binge the whole thing on Hulu in a free form right now, as a matter of fact. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Geektainment. Up next, it's nerd news, and if you thought we were getting away from the trailers, you're wrong. There's more next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
5: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But, we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify
4: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny
3: true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Time to find out why the world has enough superheroes, because it's time for nerd news. And it doesn't matter whether it's Comic-Con time or not. Plenty of trailers and news still drop. Let's start with those trailers and that Venom trailer that maybe you hadn't seen yet. Because you weren't at San Diego Comic-Con, so let's talk about it. Of course, the movie coming out October the 5th. We get to see a lot more of the symbiote in action. I don't care how they say it in the trailer or in the movie. It's going to be symbiote to me for the rest of my life. Unless Stan Lee comes out and says, no, that's not how you say it. Then that's how I'm saying it until Stan tells me otherwise. Okay, so we get to see a lot more of Tom Hardy as Venom in action. And I just want to get this out of the way right now the complaints about the CGI. At this point, I'm not even upset that people are upset about it anymore because I think that CGI now is so subjective in what you like or what you don't like. There's plenty of people. that think that the symbiote looks fantastic, that it's great CGI. And there's other people that think it looks like garbage. You know what? You're entitled to your opinion at this point. I'm not going to complain about it. I think it looks fine. I actually like more of the wet look it it. I don't know. It just makes it more creepy to me and it makes it look more sticky. And I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? You want it to look a little bit sticky. I, I never really considered the symbiote is, is skin per se. I, it always was something that was attached to the skin, right? That you couldn't get off that you couldn't like rip right off. And to me, you want that to be sticky. So I think that this is kind of the wet, sticky look, that you want to look for. Plus, Tom Hardy's sweaty the entire movie anyway. Clearly, Eddie Brock sweats a lot. I don't know if we need to get him checked out for that or what the deal is. But, I mean, I, I think it just works. And I got to tell you, the humor at the end of the trailer where he takes care of that guy in the convenience store and then he's back as Eddie Brock again, and he's, oh, yeah, I've, I've got a parasite. I lost it. When I saw that for the first time, I thought that was hilarious. So if you're going to give me the smart ass type of humor like that, that Tom Hardy can deliver, I am all in for this. Plus, I mean, you get to see the sheer evil of how these things are unleashed. And there's clearly more than one. We knew that going in, thought it would be carnage, but it looks like we get to see Riot actually going up against Venom in this trailer, which I think is really, really neat. Now, that doesn't mean we won't see Carnage at some point, but it's like, okay, so don't make Carnage the main villain for this particular Venom movie or save him for like a big end reveal or something and set it up for another movie. I know I've said that there's a danger in that. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you make Carnage like an end credit teaser or something like that. But give me Riot and that's fine because there's been plenty of symbiote characters other than just Venom and Carnage, that can be used. So why not go ahead and do this? That also lowers expectations a little bit from fans, too, because if you put Carnage and Venom in this movie, there's going to be a certain level of expectations no matter what you do. And there's an expectation that Venom's not going to be able to handle Carnage on his own, especially a brand new Venom, right? This is the origin story. Tom Hardy's just getting the symbiote. You expect him to be able to be at a Carnage level, to deal with Carnage, right away. I don't think that that's a fair ask in any movie. So I think it's smart. Go with Riot. Not that that's, you know, much of a drop off there, but you go with that and you kind of ease Eddie Brock in a little bit and they're going to play the long game. No matter what I say or have said in the past about don't set up sequels, they're going to play the long game here. I think that they feel like they've got something and I guess to a degree, maybe shut my mouth there's nothing wrong with them being confident and thinking that maybe that they have something that they could be proud of here, and they they know there's going to be a sequel. So I think it looks good. I, I've become more convinced with every trailer that I see from Venom, so I am cool with this. Let's let this happen. Can't wait for October 5th to finally see it and not just discuss the trailers. Going to switch gears here for just a second and talk about the surprise trailer that we got for Outlander Season 4 from Starz. Going to wait until November for that, though. Now, they've gone to River Run, which is the plantation owned by Jamie's aunt in the New World. But you know what? It's, just not, it's not safe there either. Basically, anywhere where Claire and Jamie go, it's not safe ever. So, I mean, you you cross an entire ocean to another continent, and they still can't find... Safety of some kind, and I know Drums of Autumn haven't read it yet. My wife has. I've sworn it to secrecy, though. I, I was going to have her come on and talk about this trailer. Definitely have her come on in November, when again to talk about the premiere. But didn't want any spoilers on this. Now it looks like they Claire actually finds a silver filling in a skull, which I thought was really interesting. And they even say, you know, this hasn't been invented a while, and for a while, is this a warning? And I'm thinking. Just you guys being somewhere is a warning. To me, they're the warning. Because no matter where they go, no matter what they do, trouble just kind of seems to seems to find them. I know that's cliche, but in their case, I think that that's very, very valid. And then you've got Bree and Roger. When are we finally going to see them? And you've got the new characters that are going to be coming in. Stars has been very, very slow to release information about Outlander. And kind of not give fans too much. And I think that that's an argument that gets made about trailers a lot, right? Is that you get a lot of them, whether it be for movies or shows. You reveal a lot in the trailers. So there's not a whole lot of surprises that come in. And you've got a lot of fans that have already read these books. But Star still wants to give you something to look forward to. Not just seeing what you read adapted, but even throw some surprises in there as well. So why would they? show too many trailers. Or why would they give too much away? I think you got to praise stars for this. Yeah, they gave you that little teaser photo. And fans are like, come on. You got to give us a little more than that. And then they did. They gave you this very short trailer. That doesn't reveal a whole lot. Other than the fact that you already knew. That they were going to the new world. And they were going to run into trouble there. And that's kind of all they really gave us. And little, just very quick. Quick shots of some of the new characters as well. So i got to say, very intrigued by what's going to be happening in the new world for Outlander Season 4. My wife is getting on me because I haven't watched the last few episodes of Season 3, so maybe I'll take care of that this weekend, and then I will be ready to go for November. Here was a little bit of surprising news that actually came out this past week, and that's Constantine's City of Demons. We have been very impatiently waiting for the conclusion of that on CWC, and it looks like we're going to get a conclusion but from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Animation, it's going to actually come out as Constantine's City of Demons, the movie, on October the 9th, which was announced in a new trailer. So, I mean, we're still going to see the conclusion of the first five episodes. Those will be in there as well that you saw on CWC. And we're still dealing with the fact that if you haven't seen these episodes yet, this is a little bit of a spoiler. We are dealing with the fact that is enlisted John's help to help his daughter, Trish, and it turns out that her soul has been stolen by a demon named Barrow, who wants to have his own little private, you know, resort of hell kind of thing, and needs Constantine to eliminate the competition. Now, we see in this trailer some of the new stuff that's going to be going on here. We actually saw some of this footage that was released when, the, the, when, when we saw the first look at it that we never saw in those first five episodes, so that's going to be a part of of what's left and we really get to see not only John do his thing and see his inner demons get unleashed, but also the relationship between John and Chaz and exactly how they're going to play off of each other and how far is Chaz willing to go for his daughter and how much is John willing to go for Chaz? Cause you know, John definitely tends to have his, he's out for himself type of, you know, personality. And that very much has played itself out in what we've seen from him in animation so far. So I, I, I've been waiting for this conclusion for a while now, and I'm glad that kind of Warner Brothers and DC have taken the bull by the horns and saying, okay, this is how we're going to do this now. And it's been, been very tight-lipped as to why this is happened the way it did, but I, as much as I liked what I saw from those first five episodes, it just didn't feel right having them broken up the way that they were. I, I enjoyed it, but it was almost... And then the, the it didn't even end on a cliffhanger. It just felt incomplete. And, and again, I loved what I saw. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense that why do you stop there? So I'm glad that we're finally going to get that conclusion. And hopefully this isn't the only one either. Hopefully there will be more after this. But for now, let's just be happy with the Constantine City of Demons movie when it comes out on October the 9th. One more trailer to talk about before we move on. It's Castlevania season two. And that was of course released by Adi Shankar. Why not on his Facebook page? And then released after that on YouTube. We know that the series is going to be dropping on October the 26th. We've got Hector. That's finally going to be introduced. And you know, if one of G- Dracula's generals for anybody that doesn't know, that's been confirmed by Adi Shankar, but you know, what side is Hector going to be on really? Or at the end of this second season, That remains to be seen. If you know anything about Castlevania lore, you know that Hector's kind of on both sides of the fence at certain times is the best way I can say it without really, really spoiling anything that might be happening on this. Now, the one thing about this trailer is Dracula is laying waste to the human race. I mean, you want to talk about a ton of bloodshed. Nothing is held back. In this trailer, and it looks like Dracula is going to be wiping out the human race quicker than even Thanos can snap his fingers. So then you see Alucard there with Trevor Belmont and Sifa, and they need to stop him. They, They, this is like they. Even Alucard says he needs to be dealt with. He needs to be taken out. So that's kind of where we are. And again, this is a trailer that doesn't reveal a whole lot other than the Hector reveal, which is very, very subtle too, by the way. And I appreciate that about this trailer. It doesn't reveal a whole lot other than other than what we already knew. And that's a continuation of last season is that Alucard is with Belmont. And now Belmont is not alone. They're going to go after Dracula. But now Dracula's not alone. He has his generals and an army of his own. So it's like we're set up for an all-out war and tons of bloodshed in this second season. So it just feels like... It's going to be ramped up even more than the first season already was. And I thought the first season was pretty darn good. Quickly going to go through a couple of nerd news items. Matt Reeves came out to say at the TCA event this past week. He was there for this passage. But, of course, somebody was going to ask him about the Batman. And the rumors are not true. According to Matt Reeves, we are not going to be getting Batman Year One. I am totally okay with that. We are also not going to get an origin story. But we are going to get an original story that is not adapted from any specific book. And he also says that it will be a, quote, noir-driven detective story, and it will be a story that's very personal to the character himself. I love this idea. Finally, we're going to get a noir-style Batman. It's going to be, definitely seems like there's going to be a focus on the detective side, almost like kind of the long Halloween. That was a very, very much focused on Batman the Detective, right, if you remember that story. So I'm not saying that this is going to be the long Halloween because I don't think it will. I do think that this will be original. And by the way, what's wrong with that? I know there are so many Batman stories that we could see adapted. Hell, I mean, DC Animation's going to be doing Batman hush, and they've done a great job adapting Batman stories of their own. But there's nothing wrong with giving us an original story. I think that that's one of the things... That the Dark Knight trilogy did pretty well. As they they you know, they followed loosely some elements, but they it was for the most part its own original story. And I think you can do that with Batman. As long as you honor the lore and honor the canon, and you wanna give me something new, I have no problem with that. So I, I applaud Matt Reeves, first of all, for having the balls to do that, and second of all, not really caring that anybody's saying, Hey, you know, you should adapt this. You should adapt that. It's like, Nope, that's not what we're doing. We're going to do noir style. I always loved Batman as a detective when I was growing up. So that's what we're doing. Beautiful. Love it, Matt. You know what? At this point, do whatever you want. I want to see what your vision is. I want to see who you use, what story you tell and why. And that's how this is the risk you take though. It's a, it's a huge risk reward. Either it's going to blow up in your face or it's going to be one of the best Batman movies ever. I don't think there's going to be a middle of the road to this type of thing. And that's one of the things I love so much about this. So bravo to him. One more thing that you might've actually seen from our website. I wrote an article about this myself earlier this week that timeless. Yes. Is going to be getting a movie. I mean, I guess you could call it that NBC announced there's going to be a two part series finale. That's going to be coming out for the holidays. That's all they've kind of said so far. The cast is going to be return, going to be returning for this. And yeah, we'll find out are the, do you guys want to get Rufus back? Or what? And and I got to tell you, I think that, and I mentioned this in the article, I encourage you to go read the whole thing at downandnerdypodcast.com. I want to touch on it a little bit here, though. And and that is, this is very much a victory for the fans, but it's also an even bigger victory for Sony. Sony managed to clearly manage to convince, and I have no inside information. This is just all my opinion. Sony clearly managed to convince NBC to do this Timeless series finale and NBC clearly to me had a hole in their holiday schedule that needed to be filled. And they thought, you know, we could get some good publicity if we do this for the timeless fans. If we save it yet again, we'll get you know, a, there'll be a lot of chatter about it, even if it's just in the short term. People will be happy, and then we could start releasing you know, first looks and trailers and stuff like that. And that'll just keep the chatter going all the way through the holidays. Which, by the way, is not a time where networks usually have their best programming coming out. And you're doing a lot of holiday specials, reruns, and things of that nature. So you throw something like a timeless movie out there, and you're almost giving it its own platform, albeit not in a time where people have a whole lot of time to sit down and watch something. I know clock blockers are going to be glued to their TV whenever this is shown. If they decided to show this on Christmas Eve at 10 p.m., clock blockers are going to be sitting on on their couch watching this, putting the kids to bed, and they're going to be watching this two-part timeless series finale. I don't think they're going to do that. And I say series finale because doesn't this feel familiar? And this was my reason for writing the article. The same thing happened with Lucifer, remember, where they canceled that, They're like, "No, nope, we're done. And then the fan outcry happened. They're like, oh, well, we'll release these two episodes. They were unaired. You know, this is just for you, the fans, right? So then they did that, and Fox never had any intention of picking Lucifer back up, just as, like I don't think NBC has any intention of picking Timeless back up. And there's nothing wrong with that, too, by the way. They've made their decision. I am fine with that. So what this is now is it's a final audition that Sony managed to grab for Timeless on NBC to show other networks okay here's why timeless fans are extremely loyal to the show so they're banking on a lot of fans watching it the ratings are good in a time where ratings usually aren't typically good for tv networks and to show why this story should continue and i'm not saying that this is going to wrap thing that this isn't going to wrap things up in a nice little bow but i know timeless fans i'm one of them i know that you cannot finish this story in a satisfactory manner in two hours. And that is not a knock on Sean Kripke. I excuse me on Sean Ryan and Eric Kripke and the timeless writers. They will do a fantastic job. They will give fans exactly what they want, but what the fans want is more. And that was one of the things that I mentioned in the article as well. We just want more and I'm glad that we're getting this. And if this is truly all we get that, I will be grateful for it. I swear, but I'm always going to want more timeless no matter what happens with this, and there's endless possibilities. Again, I don't want to read my whole article to you. Go to down and nerdypodcast.com. I encourage you to read it. Let me know your thoughts. I just don't feel like this is the end. And I've talked to Lizzie from Fangirlish. If you're a timeless fan, you know who she is, you know her passion for the show and how much she loves it. She's got some ideas of where the show could go. I didn't even realize that these places were much of an option. And she'll certainly open my eyes. I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm sure that she'll drop that at some point for you guys. So keep an eye out for that, and we'll share it as well. But I got to tell you, there is plenty of hope for Timeless fans, and this certainly gives us more of that. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, we'll go back to the press rooms at San Diego Comic-Con 2018, talk about the death of Superman animated movie with the cast and creators. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
6: Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: One of the most iconic stories in comic book history being adapted once again. It is Death of Superman from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Entertainment, and taking you into the press room to talk to the creators and the cast. Let's start with co-director Jake Castrino. The first question that was asked of him was, how do you adapt this story differently from the previous versions
6: in the back of my head was what haven't we seen with doomsday and superman already like how many times do we got to beat a dead horse no you know pun intended you know it's a it's such an iconic story everybody knows superman doomsday right like we all know doomsday kills superman no right spoiler spoiler alert. how the hell do you make that interesting again and and you know you have uh Everybody's superman doomsday you got just uh batman vs superman you got you know it's been in justice league just league Unlimited. there's doomsday's been everywhere James said from the get-go, we want to do a visceral approach to it. We want to go more uh, vicariously from the view of metropolis you know it's not just about the fight yes it's about the fight of doomsday and superman but it's also about the fallout the ramifications of seeing your champion being humanized in the front of your eyes you know and that's something that you've never seen you know the the humans of metropolis haven't seen that before as far as you know even with Darkseid or anybody uh whether you look at war or any of the other you know films that came in this continuity so uh that was just kind of one of the that was the first staple of trying to make it different was let's, let's not necessarily make it about the choreography of the fight but it's about the emotional impact of the fight, the fatigue of the fight, what that does to Superman and the people who know and love him.
0: I then got a chance to ask Jake Castorina, how do you make the finality of Superman's death impactful in a movie where we know there are sequels coming, so how do you make it matter? How do you deal with that finality though, where yes, you're killing off Superman as the death of Superman, but knowing that he's going to be coming back in a kind of such short order, how do you deal with that but still make this current project as interesting?
6: I, I feel, uh, at least just in my personal experience, story over everything, you, you focus on the story you're telling right now. Yes, you want to lay the foundations and the groundwork for that, but that's where James comes in. Uh, you know, he's the mastermind. He's been the producer uh, on all these movies. You know, Sam's been the one, you know, directing most of them, too. Uh, but that that's where James and, like, the, the head writers, that's where all their groundwork comes into play. Um, and so when we, we're given a script, James and I will sit down, or, like, in this case, Sam and I had to communicate with James and figure out what the movie we were trying to tell. And it, it uh, yeah, that whole you just got to focus on the story you're trying to tell and the point you're trying to get across. And I have faith in James and the powers that be over there that they're going to help keep this into that, you know, I guess continuity into that vision, if that makes sense.
0: Next up, executive producer James Tucker sat down, and the first question was kind of an obvious one for him. Why Death of Superman again?
6: Pragmatically, the <laughs>
1: real reason is the first movie made a gazillion bucks. Really? <laughs> it did really well. You're welcome. The thing is, is that, uh, you know... a lot of Bruce wasn't able to tell the full story because of the running time. And so um, our bosses this time around said, well, what if we give you two movies to tell more of the story? And um, I took that as an opportunity to get to some of the characters that didn't make the cut on Doomsday, which you'll see in this next movie. Um, And also, I think the death of Superman needs time to build, to and sink in and you don't like in Doomsday the first 15 minutes was when they he pretty much got killed mm-hmm. so in this movie the whole movie is about what leads up to the event and then we have this all this time to show the event so I think it gives you more um, of an impact because him dying you see how hard it was or what he went through uh, prior to dying you know um so I think it has a, it, it hopefully has a bigger impact. And then in the aftermath, I mean, you, we end the movie basically with him dead and it's like, wow, what happens next? And so um, it's not wedged in a, another movie. It's, it is the movie. So.
0: James Tucker has created some sort of a continuity in his DC movies in the past. So the question was asked, is the continuity of Superman and Wonder Woman dating actually a part of this story now?
1: When I got the gig, I didn't know we were doing continuity. That was something they sprang on me right after, you know, I, you know, signed the dotted line, as it were. Um, so I was very wanting to be very consistent with the continuity. So when this came up, I realized, well, it could work if Superman and Wonder Woman are still dating, but it it would be have a stronger impact for for all fans if it is Lois. But I didn't want it to just be, oh, throw it away. Don't don't acknowledge that Wonder Woman and Superman dated. So we do, If when you see the movie, you'll see there's, we don't forget that it happened. But in the context of the movies, they went on basically a couple of dates and they kissed twice. <laughs> I mean, you know, an adult person understands that people break up
0: so. Always good to get a chance to sit down with Phil Barrasso who is the character designer on this particular movie and the first question yep gotta ask it how do you go about designing Doomsday?
7: I feel like it was pretty faithful you know what I mean (laughs) albeit done in my style I think that like you know I can't remember exactly what he looks like in the comics. Once I've looked at the material and then adapted it I usually forget I mean, I'm running out of hard drive space at this point, especially for comic book characters, you know. Like, I end up just remembering what we ended up with. But I always try to be really faithful. I think that the the containment suit that we did, I think is pretty faithful to the look. It's about striking that balance of, like, nods and homages and reverence to comic without being handcuffed to it. Because, you know, um, comic book artists have to wear so many hats and not all of them... You know, are brilliant designers. You know, fundamentally, the 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 main strength of a comic book artist has to be storytelling, right? But they have to design their characters right on the page. So we're lucky that we get to specialize in animation. So I'm able to kind of. Distill their thing down into something that'll work for the medium.
0: With such an iconic story like this, I wanted to ask Phil where the line was for not doing a shot for shot, but still having a faithful adaptation of a story like Death of Superman. Where was that fine line though, when you're not trying to do a shot by shot adaptation of something, but, it, but it's, and again, you're dealing with such an iconic story, you yeah. still want to honor Where is that you line? You got to
7: capture the feeling, man. You got to capture the spirit of it, and you have to be faithful to the tone, you know? But it's a different medium, you know. I think we get kind of unfairly criticized for not being faithful enough to comic book source material because our stuff is hand-drawn, it, but we're film, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. We're the film medium. Right. You know, the, if you watch the Avengers or any of these, like, superhero films... Um, they don't get uh, raked over the coals for not being faithful to one arc or one they, they, it's, did you what? get the spirit of it? <laughs> well, or I, I don't or you know, yeah. and I'm a huge fan of all that stuff but it's like did they get the spirit of it? Yeah, they sure did. We're the same thing. We're closer to them than we are to comics. I mean, we are that just in, in you know, drawn form. So it's like, you know, did, did you capture the spirit of the comic book? And I think that we, in this case, we absolutely did.
0: Next up, co-director and producer Sam Liu sat down with us and he was asked after working on the last Superman Doomsday movie, which was also a Death of Superman story, did he do anything differently this time to kind of differentiate the two movies
8: yeah i mean it, i think just by nature it's very different so there wasn't a lot of you know trying to be oh make sure we don't do this i mean the fight yes obviously um uh, we didn't want to do the same inevitably some of it is kind of like wow how do we do how do, how do you kill super you know what i mean you gotta you gotta make it feel big and you gotta take them out into the atmosphere and you gotta drop them back down <laughs> to the planet like you know that makes sense so <laughs>
0: If you've read the comic, you also know the story. So the question was asked of, asked of Sam Liu. Was there anything that they wanted to do differently from the comic?
8: I think that's the hardest thing about, uh, I think, just stories in a way. Because I think, I mean, I go through this with board artists and also people that are trying to tell stories, right? Is like um, a story is, I think, a combination of the things that basically sort of proves the point that you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. And so certain things, again, when you're bored, is like that you may love that shot, but if that shot doesn't further the story, we're going to have to cut it. So a lot of times that kind of happens in the creative process as well. It's like, what are we trying to, what's the story we're trying to, what's the point of our story, you know? And so I know as fans sometimes you hate it because you're like, I love this moment, but it doesn't service the story that we're trying to tell. So sometimes we have to cut it, you know? Um, Again, it becomes very um, subjective. You know, and, and like a lot of people, hopefully a lot of people agree, but a lot of people, some people are not going to agree with it, you know.
0: You've seen the IMDB page for this movie. I'm sure you know that there are other members of the Justice League. So I wanted to ask Sam how important it was to integrate other Justice League characters in this particular movie. Obviously, the movie going to focus on Superman, on Lois Lane, on Doomsday. But talk about how important it is to also integrate other characters like the Wonder Woman character, Batman character as well, into a movie like this.
8: You know, I mean, I think it's, um, obviously they're less important, right? Because, again, it's it's like, obviously it's important to kind of know that they're firmly a part of their lives, you know? But, again, I think beyond that, that's it. You know, because, again, it's just like, I, I think it's difficult. And, again, this is just my opinion creatively, like, I think about, like, X-Men movie, you know? Like, um, I appreciated that they only focused on, you know, uh, Rogue and Wolverine mainly, and then all the other people were just sort of touched upon. to right. you know that? Okay, that I, I agree with that philosophy. Like to me, I think movies that are trying to put equal stuff on everybody, even though they're not necessarily important to the movie, I think it just makes the movie weaker. You That's know? the key. Yeah. yeah. So again, I think in this case, I think they're there enough so that you get a sense of their relationship, you get a sense of who they are, their personality, and even in the fight again, I wanted to make sure they got the moment. <laughs> Um, before they got decimated. Because
0: <laughs> you um, see the cast come out, And you go, okay, so Batman's yeah. in it, Wonder Woman's in it. Right? Are they gonna? Is it gonna try and get forced in there a little bit more? And, there, and there's a danger in that. I'm yeah. I'm glad you took it that perspective.
8: Right, right. So, um, you know, uh, Wonder Woman arguably—I mean, I don't want to spoil it too much for you—but Ar- Wonder Woman arguably has a relationship because they used to go out, you know. Right. And right. so she definitely has her moment. I think you're going to be like, man, she's a, she's a badass, you know. Um, but still, it's about Superman. You know what I mean? So um, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty emotional, you know. And so uh, I hope you guys think so too when you see it. So.
0: Speaking of those other Justice League characters, Christopher Gorham sat down, who plays the Flash in this movie, and the question had to be asked. I mean, how do you approach playing the Flash in the Death of Superman movie?
3: Well, I think there's a nice continuity to what we've established with the Flash in these movies, which is that he's kind of the linchpin of the Justice League emotionally. <laughs> Like, he's the one who's been into the idea of this family since the beginning, um, despite resistance from some of the other members, and he's the guy who's kept the group together. So there's a nice um, there's a nice moment in this movie where The Flash has some exciting personal news, and you actually get to see the Justice League family kind of turn around and embrace him in a way that we haven't seen before, um, which is a great setup for then... Uh, it kind of lays the emotional groundwork for then the big battle with Doomsday later in the movie. Um, So you get uh, that these people really care about each other. Um, and you get to see the Flash fight like you've never seen him fight before because um, you've, never se- what? You know, you've never seen his family members in what? this
0: much danger. We see a lot of humor from a Flash character in these DC animated movies. There's no question about that. So I wanted to ask Christopher Gorham if we're going to see a little bit of that comic relief in this very serious movie. I was going to ask you about that actually yeah, because the Flash is usually the comic relief in a more serious yeah. storyline and is that going to be part of this yeah, for or sure. is it a little bit more emotional on that? Side? It's, it's both.
3: It's both. Early on in the movie you get more of the comedy and the fun banter and the interaction between the characters, but then things get pretty serious in the end, obviously. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but yeah, in the beginning, and and you get to see more of it, because I think you need to establish the emotional relationship between these characters before the trauma of what happens in the end. Um, So you get some really great moments, um, including uh, my first uh, time uh, tackling the role of the Batman um, which is one of my favorite little scenes in this movie.
0: <laughs> you knew it was going to be fun when Jerry O'Connell and Rebecca Romaine, who play Superman and Lois Lane, sat down at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 to discuss death of Superman. And being a real husband and wife, the question was asked, what was it like working on this story? And you won't believe what they revealed about their actual time working on the movie.
4: The funnest thing for me was watching the final product and... Because we record at different times. That's yeah, just ironically,
2: how Jerry and I get to play out one of the most classic love stories of all time, and we didn't get to work together one day on this. Really? No, we do all of our dialogue separately from one another. And then they set it to the animation, and then we go in to tweak our dialogue, and that's the first time we see our scenes together and see if they worked or not.
4: But um, we really have a rapport with each other. It's really, I mean, it's... Go I, I mean, figure. Uh, it's... It's amazing that we were not in the same room at the same time, but we just had like a, a cadence and a, and a rapport it was really it was really cool to listen to. It was really fun I think it and I, I think it really helps helps the movie you know because Death of Superman you know um, is a lot about Clark telling Lois you know
2: his true identity
4: all, a lot about him and um, you know, that's what's so great about these DC animated films is that while the action is great and you're going to get a great fight with Doomsday and the whole Justice League is going to come and try and get in on it, um, it's it's the drama that's really good as well. They do a great job. We're, we're, we're really proud to be a part of the DC animated universe right now.
0: With Jerry O'Connell already playing Superman, the question was asked, was there any lobbying to bring Rebecca on as Lois? No.
2: I think that was an idea they had. Yeah. I mean... I couldn't believe it. Such an iconic role. And I, you know, we're children of the 80s, so my reference is is Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. And getting in there and playing out this love story between Lois and Clark and, and saying dialogue that was familiar, dialogue that I remember from when I was a kid, it, like it got emotional for me. It was really overwhelming. I'm eyed.
4: I'm much younger. My reference is Dean Kane and oh. Terry. <laughs>
0: One thing I really wanted to ask them, because it seems like they're really into these characters, was what they thought was the most interesting aspect of Clark Kent and Lois Lane's relationship. What do you think is the most interesting aspect of Clark and Lois' relationship? Well, in depth of Superman,
4: I think it's the fact that Clark has yet to tell Lois that... Um he's not only Clark Kent so that's, that's pretty interesting when you're yeah. holding a secret like that. I
2: think the weight of that knowledge for Lois Lane really becomes apparent when she witnesses the huge battle between Superman and Doomsday. Um, I think it really I mean obviously it's a lot to take on when your boyfriend tells you that he's not exactly who he said he was <laughs> But, yeah, I think watching this massive battle go down, it makes it that much more emotional.
4: To do research for this, I did go out to dinner with Rebecca. <laughs> and I told her I was you super... You told her your secret yeah. identity.
0: I think when you see Death of Superman, that title, it just stands out. You either remember when the comic came out or you remember when you read it. You rem- you remember the impact that a story like that has. And But at the same time, you know, it's comics, man, right? So you know that the Man of Steel is going to come back, but at that particular point in time, that wasn't necessarily the case. You didn't really feel that way, so this story is a real impactful one for so many fans, and to try their best to take another angle on it, put another spin on it, focus in on Superman coming to terms with his life and his love for Lois Lane, and focusing on that in this movie, I think was a great, great thing, and I think does differentiate it from other versions of this story that have already been told so I don't want to give a full review here but I will say that it was very well done I was very impressed with how they executed the story differently this time the fight was epic you kind of knew that that was going to happen I'm going to give a more thorough review so I can add some spoilers in on next week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast because I mean death of Superman you can get it August the 7th on blu-ray DVD already available on digital as a matter of fact If you want to do that, go get Death of Superman from DC and Warner Brothers Animation. You will not be let down for sure. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to everyone at Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment for letting me be a part of the Death of Superman press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018. Thanks to my fellow journalistic colleagues asking great questions at the tables. If you want to find us as a fan on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and instagram and always find everything including past shows articles that are being written new articles at down and nerdy always remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds
9: greetings adventurers today we're excited to introduce you to a new story dark dice